Well, happy Friday, Line Podcast listeners. Matt Gurney here, normally for Jen Gerson, but Jen Gerson is actually off this week. She is en route to California to do some research for her upcoming book. Joining me instead on the podcast this week is former journalist, current academic, and all-around good dude, Andrew Potter, former editor-in-chief of The Ottawa Citizen and a frequent contributor to The Line, and overall just a friend of The Line. So he joins me on the podcast today. We had a lot to talk about, mostly I would say the Public Order Emergency Commission, which is underway in Ottawa, but we talk Ukraine, we talk guns, we talk uh, politics, geopolitics, we also talk pretty damning stuff coming out about RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky, and the audio of that contentious teleconference has come out, and it doesn't look good on her. So please sit down, get comfortable, and enjoy this conversation on The Line's ongoing experimental podcast, Andrew Potter, in this week for Jen Gerson. Well, hello, Devoted Line podcast listeners, video watchers, uh, and hello, Andrew Potter, former journalist, academic, uh, joining me here today. Uh, Jen is traveling. She's on her way to California for some uh, research for her book. So Andrew, who's a friend of the line, jumped on with me instead. And that's actually a great time to get you on, Andrew, because I mentioned former journalist, not just former journalist, former editor-in-chief, Ottawa citizen for years. You know Ottawa, you know the people in Ottawa, the emerging theme this week from the Public Order Emergency Commission, I think, has been that the city of Ottawa itself, and I'm not using that as the euphemism for the federal government, I mean, municipal and police officials in Ottawa soiled themselves. And I don't know what happened. I don't think I have a credible explanation for this yet, other than that they had all the intelligence they needed, they drew the wrong conclusions, and when reality slapped them in the face, they panicked and they froze you've been you're watching this from a bit further afield now you're not uh, you're not in ottawa anymore but you're still connected to that city you know some of the people what was your reaction this week to seeing ottawa disgrace like this uh so yeah so so going back to during the during the convoy uh i was living here in montreal um i was really anxious like really anxious um because it, it 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 was pretty obvious to me from very early on. Like my father actually lives right near um, the the baseball stadium uh, where the the convoy ended up uh, with their encampment, and it was pretty obvious talking to him uh, and talking to my sister who lives downtown that things had gotten out of control very quickly. This wasn't like it sort of grew right. Things were out of control like by by day three. And it was also pretty obvious that the police, just talking to anyone, the police just had no, and this is the ongoing issue, is it no willingness or no ability to deal with it, right? And so one of the great things about uh, the, uh, we could talk about this, I think one of the great virtues of the um, Emergencies Act is that it's now giving us access to all of this material, right? This is stuff that would never have come out. Right. Um, and so so here's here's my my background to all this. And then we can talk about the details, which is that all of what we're seeing here, the the the, the territorial pissing, the the infighting, the uh, the sandbagging of your political opponents or political antagonists, the lack of direction, the uh, lack of communication, all this stuff. Right. You don't you think this is just the convoy. This is how it works. Right. This is this is how Canada actually functions, and what we're seeing is that this is how things actually function. Because you kind of think, oh, in the middle of a crisis, everyone kind of gets together in a room, right? We give them names, right, like the war room, right, or the situation room. We think, oh yeah, or the incident response group, and we think that something like effective in management is actually happening. It's not. 
right? It's the same old, uh, it's the same old uh, bullshit that goes on every day everywhere. And Ottawa, unfortunately, is a city that, um, as much as I love it, and I grew up there and so on, is a city that has been highly insulated from reality for a very long time. Uh, and, uh, and I think part of the problem is because it is used to protest. There's a protest a day there of some kind, right? Someone waving a flag and honking a horn and marching around saying, you know, death to whatever. They think they thought it was just something something very similar, not realizing how the world had changed and how reality was about to come and slap them in the face. And uh, Jim Watson, whatever his virtues as a mayor, is not a guy who uh, has dealt much with reality uh, in in the sense of uh, life outside the Ottawa bubble. And so I think you're seeing everything that's on display there. I think something you said that jumped out at me was the idea of. Um... Uh, when when you're in Ottawa, there's this expectation that you're going to get the, the incident response group or the command table, or whatever you want to call it together. And I, I've written this so many times over the last couple of years in columns, starting with COVID stuff, but now Ukraine war stuff, convoy stuff. I think the public has been Hollywoodized into thinking that somewhere in a secret base in the mountains, there's the real government. Like right. there's like the actual competent guys, but they're, they're too busy doing like training for like extraterrestrial battles or something. But like in a really serious emergency, we call them in. It's the opposite. The guys who can't issue you passports are the guys overseeing national security. Right. You know, and like, and I, I, the, the, the phrase I've been using is that competency does not scale up in right. line with the crisis. Right. Like, like you, you've got the baseline government capabilities and they are scaled to deal with, like, as you said, flag waving, horn honking protesters or, hey, asshole, my trash didn't get picked up. The garbage truck didn't come by today. That's what we've scaled our government to do. Yeah. And within that sphere, there are all these petty little personal battles. And, you know, I'm a cynic on this. You and I have talked about this before on the air, off the air over the years. I'm still appalled by how bad Ottawa was. Like I had a low expectation and they, un they, they came in way under it. You know, it uh, the stuff that's coming out. So I'll, I'll mention three things that, that struck me and you can sort of riff off that. So, so the first was um, Jim Watson's communications with uh, the prime minister uh, or yeah. Watson's uh, Watson's right arm, uh, Serge uh, Arpin, uh, his communications, right. With um, I think Mendocino's office, I think it was right. Or the public safety where, it was clear they were talking straight to him and basically saying, you know, it's what was a line where it was like, it's pretty rich. You asking us to go talk to the protesters when you've been out there stirring up trouble. Right. Yeah. Quite literally. Right. And I think Paul Wells had a good line in one of his columns uh, from his Substack this week where he said that um, after Watson asked him three or four times for, for help, Trudeau ended the call by basically saying, well, yeah, I'll kick it upstairs. Right. Like, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll talk to whoever's in charge and see yeah. what we can do for you. Right. So that's one thing. Right. And you read that stuff. And you think you think Watson's team, you know, he's he's he understands the crisis. He understands what's going on. He's on the ball. Right. But then what comes out is uh, his conversation with Diane Deans. Right. Mm -hmm. Who is the uh, head of the police services board. Right. Um, where he's clearly like sandbagging. Yeah. And uh, she knows she's being sandbagged, the, right? So the bags she's are just being stacked right? all so around her, right? So she's so she's taping it, right? And at the end of the call, she says flat out, "You know, is there a vote of non-confidence in me coming? And what do you know about this?" And he kind of goes, "Oh, yeah. not that I know of, right?" And then she says, "Come on, Jim, I've known you long enough." And he kind of says, "Well, we'll see what happens, basically, right?" Which is classic. Like I remember when I took over as editor of the Citizen. Um, 
some some columnists there and some of the uh, reporters were riding Watson pretty hard over something. I don't remember what it was. Could have been anything, right? And I remember talking to some of them at a time saying, you know, I'm kind of new here. Why are you guys so hard on Watson? He seems all right. And they said, someday you will understand, right? Like someday you will come to see the problem. And I think you're seeing that right now, right? A guy who uh, is happy to play the tough guy, uh, you know, when he needs to get something off his plate, but um, absolute refusal to own the actual problem, right? When it comes down to it. One of the things I've been writing about for years, started at the Post, kept writing about it at McLean's, now I've been writing about it here at The Line, kind of as my, my career trajectory over the last few years, has just been that our politicians are highly specialized in the skills of politics but not in governing. So a guy like Watson, you know, he's saying to the prime minister, can I get some help? And the prime minister's there to feel his pain and empathize and to, you know, rally his spirits. But he's like, can I get some cops? And the prime minister's like, I feel your pain. You know, like there isn't like a switch these guys flip to go like, okay, now we're not campaigning because that's what their skill set is. And their skill set will win them election after election. But then a bunch of guys in trucks show up like, holy shit, I don't know how to deal with this. One of the the things, I mean, yeah, it's funny because the the first day of testimony did make it look like the first day this was relevant. I think it was the third day of testimony overall. Everyone's like, wow, Watson, he really understood the score. And the PM was jerking him around. And then the next day, all the Ottawa internal (laughs) comms come out. Right. I want to I want to throw something in particular at you here. There was an interesting comment earlier in the week. Um, uh, Morris, I'm blanking on his first name, but he, he's an OPP officer who is responsible for intelligence assessment uh, for security threats. And they've been doing this work even before uh, the convoy. It's sort of a, a weekly call that where the OPP work with all the, the, the major police forces in Ontario. And they basically go, what's going on? Like, what's going on in your district? Anything you guys are worried about? Anything we're watching? And they were filing a series of reports uh, which have now been published, redacted in some form, but these reports are now available. To your point, the Emergencies Act threw all this stuff out there that we never would have got otherwise. And so Morris is testifying this week and he's taking a tone that was immediately noted by the media and it was picked up on by the segment of the population that is taking the attitude of the convoy was a bunch of freedom-loving, fun-loving people who were having a good time. And Trudeau overreacted and crushed them with the Emergencies Act. Morris's tone wasn't quite that flippant, but that's kind of what he was saying. I don't know why everyone is so worried. We saw a peaceful protest. Stephanie Carman, who's a professor at the University of Ottawa, if I recall correctly, noted on Twitter, and I'm giving full credit to her, that the very documents the OPP was entering into evidence did not match the testimony the OPP members were giving here. This is a fire hose of documents. Thousands of documents have been uploaded here. You need a team of people to be going through all this. But I printed off a bunch of them today, and I'm reading through them, and I'm comparing them to what Morris was saying on the witness stand, and I cannot match his testimony to what the intelligence reports in February were saying. The intelligence reports in February are alarmed. They are clear. This is a public safety threat. This is a growing officer safety threat in Ottawa. This is a potential national security threat they were more worried about the bridges and the borders and i actually agreed with them on that one i don't understand how we go in february from the intelligence assessment being we've got a real problem here talking about known extremist links 
talking about harder edges of protesters buried within this broader movement. Here we are, eight months later, Morris gets on the stand. I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. Right. Uh, you know, uh, so I saw I saw Morris's testimony. I saw the reports of it. And I thought, that's weird, um, because it seemed at odds with the general tenor of things back yeah. in. And, and I'll admit, I was really wound up about the convoy. And I will admit, uh, I said at the time, and I think I might have wrote some of the time that I I would not have bet money that there wasn't a McVeigh situation brewing. Right. Yeah. Like I didn't want there to be one. I hope there wouldn't be one. But would you have put your life on the line and said, nah, it's not going to happen? I don't think so. Right. Um, but and so other things we'll talk about related. Right. But then I saw this reports his testimony. I thought that's kind of weird. That seems a lot more blase than I remember. Then I saw Carvin saying I saw the tweet that you probably caught. Um, yeah. And so I didn't see her. I didn't see her dig into the any of the documents. I didn't see that. But but I caught the same thing. You know, so people are playing games uh, here, obviously. Right. This testimony is a, a big exercise in trying to figure out who's to blame. And I'd like to know what's going on. Are, are the OPP trying to say, you know, uh, if the prime minister like I, I wonder if basically everyone's trying to make it look like they had nothing to do with the Emergency Act being called. Right. So just laid on Trudeau, uh, who was panicking or whatever, but it had nothing to do with anything we were telling them. I, like, I don't know, so, so, but people are playing games. That th My assessment is basically the same as yours. And what I'm wondering, and this loops us back a little bit to what we were talking about a minute ago with Jim Watson and, and your, your time in Ottawa. I wonder if everyone who is not an employee of the city of Ottawa or the Ottawa Police Service is looking at just the fiasco of both those entities and they're going, you know what? They can wear this. Like, all we need to do is show up and sound moderately mature. If we're the adults in the room with the Ottawa Police Service or the Ottawa City Council, we're going to look amazing by default. That's right. And I, I, it's really yeah. cynical, but it could work. You know, I, I'm even more cynical about it than that, um, because I think I think there's that. Here, here's Here's one thing that I've sort of come to realize about this testimony, but also just seeing the media coverage and talking to people who I otherwise like and respect and admire and treat consider as friends who aren't from Ottawa, don't live in Ottawa. People hate Ottawa. And there is a genuine sense out there from people I otherwise think believe in the rule of law and believe in, you know, law and order and so on, that Ottawa kind of had it common. Yeah, I agree. Um, and you know who's been pretty good on this? James Moore. Uh, James Moore has been tweeting some interesting stuff where he's like, you know, I don't care what part is it. He tweeted this yesterday, right? He said, I don't care what part is inside you're on, right? If you're on the side of like law and order and peace and people not being tormented in their sleep, you're on the wrong side, right? Uh, and I think he's right. Um, but I think a whole lot of people were perfectly happy to see a bunch of Ottawa uh, swells uh, have their lives ruined for a few weeks. I really think that's the case. I think you're bang on. And I, it's it's amazing how much of this comes up in the coverage and uh, the emails I've gotten. They all go something like this. Dear Matt, interesting article. Thank you for writing it. Big fan of the line. Although I don't condone lawlessness. Ottawa yeah. hatred. Five right. paragraphs of right. it. These assholes are out of touch. They know better. Th they think they know better than us. They've they've never seen a working man in his life, in, in their lives. And it goes, it, it like it's yeah, almost it a script. Yeah. And here's the thing: I actually think there's a lot of truth in that. 
Right. Like I, I do think Ottawa's a weird bubble, as you were saying before, yeah. it's been protected from reality, but we live in an era, man, where way too many of us are making our decisions about what side we're going to line up on morally or ideologically based not on what is right, but on who it will annoy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah. Yeah. Uh, Look, uh, there's 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 a bigger picture here. I don't know how how near I want to say in this, but we'll come back to the convoy stuff. Um, one thing I was going to write about at some point is um, the study that the IRPP just put out, uh, Institute for Research on Public Policy, about uh, how Canadians feel about other Canadians. Um, Sabrina Matto is the only one I saw that picked it up. Sure to call him on it in the post earlier this week, uh, and it's basically Canadians hate one another. Um, uh, they uh, out west they hate Quebecers in particular. Quebecers don't like like Westerners, but everybody kind of doesn't like anyone else. Um, and you might think, oh, it's always been that way. Canada's a bunch of country regions and so on. But if people actively don't like one another and think that everyone, they all think that, that the other side is getting uh, a better deal in Confederation. They all think they're paying, paying more in a Confederation to get out of it. They all think they're being hosed by the federal government and so on. Right? Um, at what point is anyone going to come to anyone else's help? Right? Like a federation is supposed to be, in a certain extent, a uh, mutual insurance plan, right? Uh, And uh, that requires a a certain amount of social solidarity, um, that that you're part of a shared community of interest. Um, Does that even exist anymore? No. I mean, to an extent. And I mean, I'll tell you to an extent, um, when a hurricane whacks PEI, the hydro trucks come from everywhere, shit like that. Like, we'll still do stuff like that, but... No, I, I think you're right about this. And I think this probably, like as you said, we can kind of take this as big or as broad as we want to, but we've known for years that social trust scores are low. Institutional yeah. trust scores are low. And if we want to have an, a happy, united federation, what we need to do is have competent, effective institutions that actually tie all this shit together. But think of our national level institutions right now. They're all tire fires. Right. Like, like, what do you... Yeah. What do you rally behind? And this is, I mean, I don't know if you want to keep going on, on the convoy thing, but I, we'll talk in a minute about the RCMP. I do want to talk about the convoy. Let's keep talking about it. All right. Well, I mean, I, we'll get to the RCMP in a minute, but when it comes to the convoy, I agree with you. And I think, and there's a, and I, I do think um, I'm not immune to this. Like, did I roll my eyes a little bit at the overheated rhetoric coming out of people in Ottawa? It's like, these horns are like living in a war zone. Like, of course I did. But I also think if you're if you line yourself up morally or ethically behind the people who annoy the elites, you're probably making stupid decisions. Yeah, the, the, the there's a few things that made me a bit crazy about about um, the sort of the convoy was harmless thing is that um, and they say, well, who was hurt? Nobody was beat up. Nobody there was, like the absence of violence is not um, the absence of fear and it's not the absence of threat uh, and it's not the existence of law and order. Right. Uh, and so these are not the same thing. Anarchy is not uh, is not law and order, uh, and there's no question that anarchy reigned throughout much of the downtown core. The the other is the, the line, and we can call it the bouncy castle, uh, you know, uh, um, parade. The things that things that it was just a bunch of people out for fun that everyone overreacted because they'd never seen you know people who had real jobs before or something like that, right? Well, explain to me a few things then. Um, why has it emerged that the police were genuinely afraid to go into the baseball diamond uh, to break up uh, the stockpiling of, of, of uh, fuel and so on there because they're afraid of violence? What are they afraid of? Someone's going to throw them into a bouncy castle and swing them around? 
Give him right. a hot dog. Right. Why yeah. why did the OPP tell the Ottawa police service that they would not participate in their uh, uh, decision to break up the Rideau Street uh, encampment at night? Right. On the grounds that it was it was too dangerous, too dangerous. Why? Right. You're going to wake some kids up who were sleeping and, uh, you know, with their soothers. Why did it take twenty three hundred cops to clear it out? You know, you, you know this. Uh, so answer for our listeners. How many people deployed to Afghanistan and Kandahar under Canada? when we had control of it from 06 to 11? Um, kind of at maximum strength would have been about 3,200 Canadians at a time. Yeah, so right. two-thirds yeah. of the force we sent to Kandahar was sent to Ottawa. Yeah, so so how many, and, and of that, right, of the of the 3,000 who were deployed as part of the battle group, how many were door kickers, right, uh, or trigger pullers? 500? 200? Probably about right. 500. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? So 2,300 cops to clear out downtown Ottawa when we had sent 3,000 people to uh, govern Kandahar, right, to try yeah. and run, come on, right? This wasn't this wasn't a bunch of uh, peaceful uh, flag wavers. I'm sorry. I think you know, and I, I one of the things that drives me crazy about this um, is one of our weaknesses as a society right now is just completely zero ability to see any nuance. What I wanted people to take away from my coverage when I was in Ottawa is that this thing was complicated, that there were layers there. Yeah. There were so many nice people there, badly informed, but decent, kind people who genuinely thought they were there at this peaceful, transformative protest. And they did they would not believe when you told them that there were other people there because the mainstream media lies to them. Right. And you like there was you just you couldn't break through that. And I think what we're seeing right now, we have thousands of documents, thousands of pages of documents being tabled here. We are getting an unprecedented look at the inner workings of the machinery of Canadian government. And instead of looking at this as this incredible opportunity, people are finding the one line in any of the testimony that supports their pre-existing opinion, and they're rushing online to tweet it. like. Okay. We are not treating this as an unprecedented event. We're just folding it exactly like we did with COVID. Exactly like we did with COVID. We're instead of going, well, here's something remarkable. We're going, what would the liberals think about this? Because they're wrong, and yeah. we're seeing the exact same pattern. We're not, we're never going to learn these lessons. Like we're not going to like if this if something like this happened today, well, there would probably be a degree of operational experience that had been gathered. But as a people, we don't learn. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Uh, I, I think that's absolutely the case. So we should talk about this some more uh, down the line. Um, Let's do it. I, I be, as, as the POC, as the, as the, uh, that's the thing um, unfa unravels. I'll say, I'll say one last thing on the, con sure. on the, on the whole hearings, which is that um, to, just touch on what you just said. Um, if, if I were Trudeau right now, I'd be sorely tempted. I know this is probably bad politics. Everyone told me it's crazy to say, you know, do it, do a, um, a few good men, right? You're damn right I ordered the Emergencies Act, right? Mm -hmm. Why? Because I was getting lied to by everybody, right? I couldn't get a straight answer out of anyone, right? I was told I was under threat. I was told I had nothing to worry about. Cops wouldn't do this. The cops wouldn't do that. I got Watson telling me about this. Then he sandbagged his own police chief, right? Yeah. I got all this bullshit going on. I had to own the problem. I took it. I owned it, right? So sue me. Honestly, if he did that, I would like the guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Sorry, I'm just going to turn this off. Got a bunch of messages sure. coming. Sorry about that. Um, let's talk. I mean, first of all, I want to mention to you and all, and all the listeners and viewers. So we're basically, effectively, we're one week into this thing. It's going to be a six-week process. 
this is technically the second week, but the, the opening days were all procedural documents being introduced, things like that. So we are not rushing to conclusions at the line. Jen and I, before Jen flew out this morning, she and I talked about this. We're not going to go for the instant takes. We're going to wait yeah. to see how this unfolds. The one thing we will say is that we will make a point of making this a, a large piece of every dispatch we run at the end of a week, as long as the testimony continues. Yeah. And if as warranted throughout, we'll have other articles, we'll probably run about it. But when this is all done, we're going to do a review of it all. We're also going to do a review of our own coverage and see how it holds up in, in light of what we've learned. Yeah, so, I think that's smart. Um, okay. I mentioned already national institutions, they're all tire fires. The military is a debacle. The federal government's a debacle. You can't get a passport. Uh, Hockey Canada is, is raping everybody and then covering it up. Um, the RCMP. So yeah. we, on Thursday, out of nowhere, the Mass Casualty Commission in Nova Scotia releases the audio of the teleconference that involved National RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky and the local civilian and uniformed officials in Nova Scotia after the 2020 uh, massacre. I think the listeners and the viewers by now will know this, but let me recap it in like 20 seconds. After the massacre, about 10 days after, Lucky has this teleconference with her staff, and it was alleged by the staff that she was pressuring them to hurry up and release information about the guns used. They did not want to because they were still investigating. They alleged that Lucky was pressuring them to hurry up and release that info so that it would help the liberals pass gun control legislation. The liberals say, no, we had no part of it, no undue pressure. And Lucky herself basically denied this. She said, I made mistakes on that call, but I would never do that. The audio is now out and holy shit, it's yeah. a smoking gun. Right. And as a friend of mine said to me, I've been in politics for more than a decade. This is the first time I've seen a smoking gun. It does not implicate Trudeau, Blair, anybody. You could there's still wiggle room there, but the what the staff accused Brenda Lucky of, they have her dead to rights and they have her on tape. Yeah. So uh yeah, I uh I think it's a smoking gun. Is it the first time? No. And you know when we also had a smoking gun? Uh this is the thing about getting older. Uh getting older sucks in in most ways, except you see uh, patterns and you see things happen. And if you're lucky enough, you actually remember what happened and can tell tell the new kids on the block just what's going on, right? Uh, uh, so let's talk about the APEC affair quite briefly here. Uh, oh, that's old school. Not, right, 1998? Old school. 1996, I believe. Okay. Maybe 98, I can't remember. Late 90s. Uh, Canada's host of uh, one of the APEC conferences. Jean Chrétien wants to show off uh, UBC campus, so they uh, so they host an APEC conference on UBC campus. Yeah. Invited is uh, dictator Suharto of Indonesia. Yeah. So UBC students, being students, uh, are quite unhappy with a dictator being invited to party on their campus, so they hold up signs, right? Um, no... Uh, no dictators on UBC campus, freedom, blah, blah, blah. You know, just usual student protest thing against the dictator on their campus. Um, and for their efforts, a whole bunch of them get pepper sprayed, um, arrested, thrown into vans, and dragged off. Yeah. Right? Um, 1997. I just 1997. It. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so what happens out of all this? Well, Jean Chrétien makes a big joke out of it. Nardwar asks him a question about it at a, a press conference, right? You've seen that famous line, right? Uh, Nardwar asks him and Chrétien I put says, the pepper on my plate. Pepper, I put on my plate, right? Uh, press gallery all laughs, right? Chrétien, oh, good old Jean, isn't he funny, right? Except UBC, being UBC, uh, has a law faculty, and the law faculty decides they're not going to like let this go, 
right? Yeah. So um, led by a, a professor named West Pugh and a few others, they keep they keep digging and the students get representation. Some of the kids are arrested were law students and they dig and they dig. And they write a book about it called Pepper in Our Eyes, which comes out. And there's an inquiry uh, into what happened led by Ted Hughes, the late Justice Ted Hughes, who puts out a report, right? He does an inquiry to find out just what happened because the question was, why was the RCMP arresting students? Uh, why did the RCMP tell students that they declared the campus a charter-free zone? Well, they say it's because the PMO told us to. Uh, and, uh, oh, really? Jean Chrétien says, I didn't tell anyone to do that, right? No, the liberals so are have, the party of the charter. They would never do that. The party of the charter, right? So, they, so, so when, they, when they drag it all out, and Hughes does a report. Um, he digs into just how much political interference there was. It turns out that the PMO did direct the, the Mounties to arrest the students, but it wasn't John Chrétien who did it. No, it was it was his uh, his his buddy Jean Carl, who was uh, quite known as one of Chrétien's best friends and a protege and just a guy who was in there saying, "Oh, wasn't John telling you to arrest the students?" But I, Jean Carl, when Hughes reports came out, Wes Pugh, the law prof, wrote a piece where he said, "What's gonna?" This is right before the report came out. He said. What happens if we get a report claiming that or, or alleging that or finding that um, the prime minister directed student uh, directed the bounties to arrest students in violation of the charter on a university campus? He says, what what does that mean? Right. It's the rule of law in Canada. Right. Uh, and of course, report comes out, says that exact thing. Nothing happens. Yeah nothing happens right and so Pew wrote a piece about it called the uh, a law a law review article called um the prime minister's police um policing in canada right so the mounties have been the prime minister's police for a very long time in this country going back to confederation nothing has changed um all that we're finding out with uh the lucky is that um when you get caught uh you'll probably get away with it as as uh as john Chrétien did and as i'm certainly uh, almost certain john Tr uh, justin Trudeau will right now the question, I mean, I agree with you entirely on that. The, the, the recording still, I mean, unless Lucky decides to burn it all down, like if she says the hell with it, this is what happened. And I'm telling you overtly that I was ordered to do these things by these evil Trudeau cabinet ministers. Maybe then she could take them out. But I think probably what my, I mean, first of all, assuming Lucky has any consequences at all, that's a stretch. I don't assume I don't assume you? there will be. Right. Um, but I think the the evidence that has come out, the audio evidence, is brutal for Commissioner Lucky, but it doesn't go any further. Right. Like there's nothing that, that nothing that proves that she was doing it because she was told to, or right. Implies, hints, suggests, but proves no. Yeah. So right. that's it, fun. Yeah, it, the APEC thing. That's that's interesting. The APEC thing, I think, um, Paul Wells sometimes makes fun of me because for me, this is like um, you, you bring up Jean Chrétien and I just start I just start frothing them out because APEC for me, I was a student at the time and and it just it struck it was it struck me at the time. I was I used to be idealistic, right? I was in I found it so enormously cynical, mm. right? Because because it was clear that Chrétien just didn't want to be embarrassed yeah. uh, by the students. He wanted to show Suharto a good time, right? Um, and the good news is, I think I wrote about this for the line once, uh, the good news is uh, that Suharto was promptly kicked out of office within a year. Um, and within a few years, so was Jean Chrétien, right? Um, but, um, you know, uh, I don't forget. Canadians might yeah. forget. <laughs> I don't forget. Was that your red pill moment? 
Uh, it was definitely a moment when I, I, I thought, you've got to be kidding me, right? I, I, I ended up becoming um, friends with Wes Pugh, um, and he served as a bit of a mentor for me in my early academic career, and uh, he's, he, he died a couple of years ago, but um, he was great. And uh, the one thing he, it struck me that we were chatting about once, he said, he said here's the thing about the Canadian Constitution. Um, you could write it on a card. It says, trust us. Mm. He goes, there's nothing more to the Canadian Constitution than that, ultimately. It just well, says, trust us. Like I said a minute ago, right? All of our national institutions right now are a dumpster fire. And our provincial yeah. institutions, I mean, uh, here I know you're in Montreal, here in Toronto, will finally get my kids back in school after all the COVID disruptions. And the and the support staff are doing a strike vote. And yeah. hospitals, <laughs> so the hospitals don't work. And in the city of Toronto, the, the LRT that's supposed to have a station opening 600 yards from my house, that's delayed indefinitely. And the, and the roads are crumbling. Like, yeah. trust Montreal. us. Montreal just delayed. Montreal has a, a light rail that was supposed to open this fall to the South Shore. And uh, in anticipation of that, they uh, closed the, the, the bridge that takes you to Longueuil. Uh, uh, not the tunnel, pardon me, the tunnel. They closed three, three of the six lanes, quadrupling commute times on the assumption that the, the light rail was going to open. They just postponed it till next year. There you go. Yep. And the, and, and the tunnel's closed. Of course. Yeah. I mean, what do you expect? <laughs> they got to fix the tunnel. Um, th this is kind of related a little bit to what we were talking about a minute ago. Um, today, not not a shock because we knew it was coming, but on Friday, um, there there was an announcement uh, by the federal government, a series of announcements in Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal. They staggered them with different cabinet ministers that the so-called handgun freeze is now in effect. If you own a handgun, you can keep it, um, but you may no longer purchase another one, sell it, or uh, transfer between owners. So... You know, I, I called this in a previous line column. This is the Liberals' Goldilocks decision on handguns. We have exactly the right number. We don't want any more, but we don't need any less because we're not right. banning them. We're just letting you keep them. Right. A um, couple of days ago, a couple miles from my house, a volley of gunfire aimed at cops in Toronto. Uh, they were able to arrest the guy. Thank God. Not one life will be saved because of this. But I bet you the liberals will uh, shore up their suburban and urban vote, particularly with women. And you talk about the cynicism of it all. I uh, I came into my journalism career knowing the gun control system unusually well. Um, my grandfather was a, a veteran and a hunter, and he had a large collection of firearms at one point. And then he got Alzheimer's. And he decided for his own reasons that he needed to get rid of them, right? Like He was mature about this. And I had to get kind of elbow deep in, in the guts of the gun control system. And I was in my early 20s at the time, I guess. Didn't own a gun, but I just had to, I ended up taking some of his. Like I got licensed and I took some of his. It was my APEC moment. Dealing with the long gun registry in particular was like politically transformative for me. And I learned the system. I've studied the system. When you actually know the system and you're embedded in it, you really easily see the bullshit that these proposals are if you aren't familiar with our laws you don't and the liberals know that and they're counting on it right i think that's right uh i i think um so like you i, I have a gun license uh, i got one about 15 years ago when uh my dad who grew up in rural nova scotia you know, I got in our heads that we're going to do some hunting, uh, just like just like when he was a boy, right? Uh, we never got any hunting, but we got licensed and went skeet shooting a handful of times uh, at, at Stittsville out in Ottawa. Um, 
And you know what strikes me about uh, about this? And I used to talk to um, reporters at this about the citizen a, a few times, writing about gun control and gun licensing and all this. Is every I thought every reporter should just take the the take get their pal, uh, take the course. It's a couple yeah. of days. You learn a lot. You learn a lot about um, the law. You learn a lot about the the care and the professionalism that goes into it. If you take like I had to go to the RA Center in Ottawa, and it was just like I was I was very surprised at just how rigorous it was. Um, if, if, if you want to get your restricted license, it takes another day. So it's three days out of your life. Uh, you know, I'd like to see liberal cabinet ministers all just get their, get their restricted licenses, you know, then put the law into place because like, you know, on the one hand, I'm not a gun nut. Um, if, if, if Canadians decided tomorrow that guns were just illegal, buy them all back. Fine. You know, I, I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's, I, I think hunting is a thing and I, I this, but you know, um, if, if Canadian, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a right in any deeply meaningful sense. Um, but, uh, I do think that, uh, you should understand what you're doing and why. And yeah. I think anybody who, who understands how people get licensed here and why nobody in the right mind is going to get a pistol license in this country, submit all the information they have to the RCMP and then go on a crime spree. Like, this doesn't make any sense. You know, you're going to do everything you can to keep that gun under lock and key and keep your license. The thing that um, the, the liberals have said is uh, one of the reasons they're doing this is because of the so-called straw purchases or uh, the, the black market, right? Where a guy with a clean criminal record gets licensed, buys 30 guns, and then wouldn't you know it, they all vanish into uh, the black market to be used by gangs. And apparently there have been some incidents with that. And I said to a, a liberal colleague of mine years ago, oh, okay, well, then just have some sort of validation check that the, the firearm is maintained in your license. You could do it on Zoom. Like you right. do a Zoom at the yeah. firearm center and it's like, show me, the, it show, me the, show me the serial number. Yeah. Here's the serial number. Boom. Like it would be the easiest thing. You could have red flags built into this. It would be a pain in the ass. People would grumble about it and it would be um, controversial. I know, but it actually would address the, what the problem, what they claim the problem is, right. but they're not doing that. They are going for maximum visibility, minimum impact. And as I've written so many times, when you understand the system and you see what they're proposing and what you're doing, you realize, and there is nothing more despairing, maybe, I don't know if that's the right word. When you know what the truth is and you see yeah. someone lying through their teeth, it's really demoralizing. I had, I had a liberal cabinet minister. Um, I was out for coffee with them. I won't give their gender away. Uh, three years ago um we were just chatting uh talking about strategy for upcoming election blah 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 right and they floated uh the gun stuff and uh this person knew nothing about the policy nothing uh knew nothing about anything to do with anything and i said you don't know anything about this right this is bad policy and they said yeah yeah but it'll play well in the cities like flat out right they, they said flat out it'll play well in the cities and i just i just looked at them i was like come on like is it really is that is that all it is yeah. like it, it, and it just yeah it is right um it really bummed me out it really bummed me out one of the interesting things i have found in recent years it when i ex people will be like oh you're a gun guy how you own guns i'm like yeah like oh i don't like guns you know that's yeah, an american thing yeah. and i and they're like we shouldn't have that and i'm like well tell you what how about we do the following and i lay out a series of steps i'm like would you be comfortable then they're like yeah that sounds reasonable i'm like dumb fuck that's the law like I didn't describe to you a hypothetical. I just described to you the status quo. It's like, all right, all right, all right. How about anyone all right, all right. who wants to own a gun 
has to go through a multi-day safety training course, has to be vetted for psychological and criminal background issues, has to keep the guns locked in a very specific circumstance and submits to routine police criminal background checks. And you can only use the firearms under certain conditions and at certain places. And 95% of the people go, well, okay, that's fine. And I'm like, great. Yeah. You support the status quo. To get to get your license renewed, your spouse has to give approval. Yep. You can't just get it renewed on the sly, right? They like they ask your wife or your spouse. Yep. You okay with this guy having a gun, right? Like it's it's actually pretty strict. Which completely anyway. tripped up a buddy of mine. Not that he was abusive, but his wife just doesn't like guns. Right. He really wanted to get a gun so he could go skeet shooting. Couldn't do it. Right. Now she ultimately said, "Oh, fine, get the one." But like right. it was it was a thing. It yeah. was not possible. Yeah, I, I, I do find it in, a, in its own way radicalizing. And I tell people all the time, I don't expect you to care about guns. Guns are weird. It's like yeah. it's such a small segment of the Canadian population, but you should care that your government's lying to you. Yeah, I think that's. <laughs> yeah. All right. Drop, well, we got, drop we got the a, mic on that one. We got a few minutes left here. You uh, before we got started, uh, you were talking about Ukraine. We you and I both watch Ukraine stuff carefully. There was kind of frantic activity over, say, about a month ago over a period of weeks. Things have slowed down a bit since then in terms of battlefield advances, but it does look like the Ukrainians are still pushing on the city of uh, Kershon. And I think more to the point, what we're seeing across the board with Russian tactics evolving, they're not trying to win on the battlefield. Like they are switching to a complete terror campaign. These drones they're using to hit targets in uh, uh, Kiev would be militarily useful on the battlefield the fact that they're slamming into power plants and apartment blocks it's not a fluke that's a choice they're yeah. taking precious weapons and using them to kill civilians yeah um so we could have done this whole thing just talking about the ukraine war i, I tend to get obsessed about stuff and it's a problem for my for my day job and my my social life when, when the convoy was happening it was just like i was up till like two o'clock every morning just following twitter feeds on this and mm -hmm. and then once the ukrainian invasion started i mean crap i spent probably 90 minutes a night going through various osint sources and various things and so on um uh so yeah, there's a lot going on. You know, the best sources, and this is for all line readers out there, the Daily Telegraph uh, has mm -hmm. a daily podcast. Um, uh, on It's called Ukraine the Latest. It comes out around one or two o'clock our time every every day. It's, a, it's about a 45 minute podcast where they go through uh, the state of the war. They talk about, they got reporters on the ground there. And then they usually interview someone, uh, either Ukrainian or something like that about just what's happening in various parts. It's, it's fantastic. It's like the best one-stop shop for what's going on there. Um, with respect to this this um, crazy uh, thing that, that Putin's doing, you're absolutely right. I, I read one interesting explanation, which is that uh, he's launching, you know, uh, million dollar drones that are being taken out by two million dollar rockets, right, or whatever the math is, right. And it's just it's just a way of uh, draining uh, Ukraine's uh, air defense resources. Yep. Um, I think the most interesting aspect of this is that apparently the Iranians are actually flying them. Uh, that this is a report that Iranians are on the ground in, in Crimea because the Russians couldn't fly them. They were too, they were too stupid. Uh, they were crashing them and, and all this. And so the, so they called the, the Iranians and said, oh, we don't know how to fly all these stupid drones. And so now there's Iranians actually running the, running the missions, which is, I mean, you want to talk escalation, that's escalation. If, if Ukrainians uh, are actively flying drones into, into uh, you know, civilian buildings in cave, uh, we've got trouble. 
I this is going to sound bloodlusty, and I don't mean it this way, but if something were to happen to those Iranian drone production facilities, yeah, <laughs> you know, so oh, I, I had to say, yeah, so so every. So Israel's not involved, right? Won't 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 ship weapons to uh won't, won't give them the involved. Iron Dome, won't do anything, right? I totally understand why Israel's not doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh Israel has a huge issue with Russia uh and Russians, uh and uh both in Syria but also domestically. I think Israel's always gonna do what's in Israel's interests. Israel will never do anything other than that. And you can tell them, oh, well, Iron Dome was paid for by American taxpayers. It doesn't matter, right? Israel doesn't give a shit, right? Not right? Our interest. Um but um you know, if if uh, Iran were to take out some sites, if if Israel were to take out some sites in Iran, yeah, what a shame! What a shame that would be, right? <laughs> tough, neighborhood. Iran, yeah, tough neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. Um. And as for sending bloodlust, you know, I I uh, I I'm full of bloodlust on this. I have to say, and, and I'm I'm a chicken hawk, absolutely. You know, people are like, oh, would you go fight? Well, you know, um, I, <laughs> I'm 50. My back hurts. No, uh, it's it's uh. I, I am so worked up over the Iran thing. I, I, I will say this about the about the Ukrainian war, um, that I'm always surprised that people aren't as wound up about it as I am, because as far as I'm concerned, this is the uh, geopolitical issue of our time. And if we don't get this right, uh, a whole lot of bad things are going to happen. And I don't mean nuclear war. I just mean for the world order, um, if we don't get this sorted out. It is a revival of the domino theory, and I know a lot of people today believe the domino theory was bullshit in the Cold War. I don't. I think it, you stop these things where they start, or you wait, and then they go somewhere else, and then you wait, stop it there, or you wait. Sooner or later, it gets somewhere where you're not willing to back down, and you, yeah. you get pushed into a corner. When it, come, when it comes to Iran in particular, given the domestic arrest uh, unrest in Iran itself, I don't know. Maybe this is a problem that solves itself in a couple of weeks, which would be amazing for a lot of reasons. But for now, no, I, I agree with you. I, I'm frustrated that Israel isn't supplying Iron Dome. The last time I was in Israel, the three most common languages I heard were Hebrew, Arabic, and Russian. Yeah, People would speak English to me, but more people spoke Russian. There's a yeah, there's huge an Russian diaspora there. Yeah, and and uh, and Russia runs. They talked about this on the on the uh, Telegraph podcast. Russia has Israel has offices in Russia where uh, the, the, where um, people are processed to, to to come to Israel. Right? Israel yeah. needs those offices open. Um, Israel's not going to help. Not going to help Ukraine directly on this. No, no, it's a shame. Now maybe it becomes in Israel's interest to deal with Iran for other reasons. But no, I agree with yeah. you on that one. I get, I mean, we've been talking a long time. You and I both got hard outs coming up in a couple minutes. I got to go pick up my kids. Um, yeah, so do I. No, all right. Well, thank you for stepping in. You you have made an able Jen Gerson substitute. Well, you know, I'm not I'm not the pretty young thing that Jennifer is, but uh, you know, if the line is, is two bald guys chatting away uh, on a Friday afternoon, that's good. I, th- I think that will appeal to the demo. We'll say that. <laughs> yes. All right, uh, Andrew Potter, uh, uh, former journalist and uh, uh, now academic. Thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. Well, that was fun. Andrew Potter, now our second special guest here on Align Podcast, and it was a pleasure to have him here. For Andrew Potter and also the traveling Jen Gerson, this is Matt Gurney. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and we hope you'll continue to tune in here as the Lions Experimental Podcast continue. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you soon.